I am now recording live from the BBC. I'll put on my best radio voice. <laughs> Hi and welcome to the 10th episode of the Military Medicine Podcast hosted by me, James Coote and Matt Kane. This month's interviewee barely needs an introduction. Dr. Daniel Kraft is probably one of the most prolific physician innovators on the planet. His formative years were spent at Stanford, then Harvard, and then he squeezed some time in at the International Space University. He then became a flight surgeon on an F-15 squadron after his residency, and since then has been extraordinarily active in the medical innovation space, involved heavily in medical devices, founding a highly successful conference called Exponential Medicine in California, giving a multi-million viewed TED talk, flying planes in his spare time, raising a couple of young boys, and now has a military medicine podcast episode to add to his list of accolades. We hope you enjoy this fascinating episode with Mr. Medical Innovation, Dr. Daniel Kraft. Well, thanks for joining us, Daniel. Uh, we kick off the podcast with five quickfire questions that you're only allowed to answer with a single word or phrase. Uh, and then we'll come back to some of these a bit later in the episode. Are you ready? Rock and roll. <laughs> so, so you're a physician, scientist, innovator. If you had to choose to be only one of the three, which would it be? <laughs> I'd say sort of innovator. It's, it's, it's fun to be a doc. It's fun to be in the lab. But when you get to innovate and hopefully create something new uh, and bring it to the world, that's, that's the most uh, fun. That wasn't that a one-word answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. Let's, let's go with innovator for 200 pounds, please. <laughs> in 20 years, what do you think will be the most important medical application of 3D printing? I think it'll be bioprinting, uh, blending cells and tissue engineering. Okay. And at the $1,000 or £1,000 price point, would you recommend I shell out and have my genes analyzed like you've done? Yes, though. Hopefully the NHS will be paying for it at a far lower price point soon. <laughs> and, and on that sort of uh, price point theme... Healthcare prices are clearly increasing in the U.S., but uh, healthcare outcomes on the whole are actually worsening uh, over there. Uh, is technology the culprit or the solution? I'd say the solution, um, and it's not about technology alone. It's how you integrate it into the entire system, which will be different in the U.S. at a Kaiser or a VA or at an NHS or anywhere else in the world. So you need to blend the technology uh, to create solutions, not look to technology alone. Okay, brilliant. And, and what's the single best resource for our audience to learn a bit more about medical innovation after the podcast? I'd say go to exponentialmedicine.com slash videos. We have some, you know, 100 plus talks from incredible thought leaders across health, medicine, technology that take deep dives into some of the things we'll just uh, touch on here. Fantastic. Thanks for that. So mentioned earlier, you're a physician, scientist, scientist and innovator. You called yourself an innovator first, but what's the percentage split? Uh, well, I'm still board and licensed up as a, I trained in internal medicine, pediatrics, hematology, oncology, aerospace medicine, um, doing less clinical time now, uh, still collaborating um, on some lab projects at Stanford and beyond. But I'd sort of almost say sort of beyond innovator, it's, it's hopefully a bit of an instigator and a catalyzer to help um, um, Innovators from around the world, you know, blend their clinical mindset, innovation mindset to uh, take ideas and uh, bring them into clinical impact. 
And are you alone in keeping up both the clinical side and the innovation side, or is it important that you still try and keep that clinical side whilst you innovate? I think most of the inspiration that you know many of us have is from being in the clinic, in the, in the trenches per se, and seeing the challenges and the pain points, but also having the mindset now that we're in an era where you don't need to build a new app or device or 3D print the, the product. You can come up and collaborate with others to solve. So um, I sort of, uh, I, I find having the clinical touch points extremely important and sometimes even sort of parachuting into another clinical environment and having sort of fresh eyes, whether it's an operating room or procedure room, a clinic, and sort of seeing things from a bit of an inside and outside perspective to get a, an idea about, wow, why are you doing it that way? Isn't there another, maybe there's an app for this. Maybe there's a, <laughs> A solution that's already been built in another part of the planet that can help uh, collaborate to solve a, a pain point locally. It's just keeping on the clinical side, so you recently shared a post on Twitter about physician burnout, and you referenced a paper which found that the telomeres of first-year junior doctors aged six times faster than normal. So you're a pretty busy guy. How do you avoid burnout and keep your telomeres in good shape? I'd- I take my telomeres to the gym every morning. Um, <laughs> I think it's a challenge for, obviously it's a challenge for all of us. We're busier getting busier. I don't have, uh, I try and get to the gym and do my Peloton, you know, bike ride. I live in Portola Valley, try and get some real bike rides in with friends. Um, you know, but clearly, you know, particularly folks in earlier in their, in their medical career, it's a real challenge to balance, you know, the clinical time. And I'm, it's not surprising that junior doctors are aging faster given the sleep and stress elements. But for myself, I try and try and sort of balance things off a bit of a reasonable diet, get enough exercise in, uh, despite having young kids, try and uh, optimize sleep. Um, but I'm certainly not perfect at it. And uh, sometimes the simplest thing is to have a scale, a little digital scale that shows you, you know, every time you get on, are you up a pound, down a pound? That simple sort of <laughs> feedback loop can be uh, particularly impactful. And then, you know, looking at my Fitbit and comparing my sleep to others like me can be a competitive sport as well. <laughs> so, we, so we'd like to focus this episode on the hardware side of innovation. And first up, what do you think are the three most exciting areas of medical innovation in the hardware space? Well, I think one of my sort of thematics is that we need to get out of the sort of silos of, is it a drug, a device, an app? And we're sort of seeing this blending of, let's say, hardware and software. Um, even here in the United States, the FDA has a whole sort of new initiative as software as a medical device. So I think the most, one of the most interesting pieces is now that all of, a lot of our hardware is becoming connected in the, not just the Internet of Things, but the Internet of Medical Things, Internet of the Body, Internet of the Hospital, whatever you want to call it, that's starting to ride 5G. Almost every device now can have a, a connection element, whether it's tracking a, a, a pump in a hospital or a, a surgical element to, um, in real time. And so I think the most interesting element is to, to blend the data piece, the, the hardware side, and the insights you can gain from that uh, including the ability to sort of guide a clinician through a procedure. We're starting to see the advent of, you know, a video can record a laparoscopic cholecystectomy now to, with machine learning to understand, you know, where are the instruments, what's the surgeon doing, now to interpret that and eventually give real-time feedback to the clinical team, almost a GPS for a clinical procedure. So that's blending data, devices, um, AI, machine learning. Um, so. I'm not answering your question exactly, but I think the, the exciting part is blending modalities and having our connected devices sort of, um, whether you're wearing them um, or you're leveraging them in a clinical endeavor to, to sort of 
give us uh, hopefully uh, enhanced feedback that can improve outcomes. And, and you've given a, an acclaimed TED talk on 3D printing tailored medications. Um, for those in the audience who, who perhaps haven't seen it, can you summarize what you've achieved and, and kind of why you're going after this area and, and particularly related to your last answer, sort of how you're connecting up different modalities to be able to tailor medical treatments through a 3D printer in this connected health sort of model you talk about? Well, I don't think it's about a sort of 3D printer per se, but thinking about what pain point are you trying to solve for? Um, I, when I was a bone marrow transplant fellow at Stanford, I went through the very first year of the Stanford Biodesign Program, which is now spun off uh, elements in many institutions around the world. The core element there is to find a pain point that you really want to understand and solve. Um, and I love to solve that with the lens of emerging technology. So um, I trained in pediatrics and adult medicine and pediatrics, as most folks know, we spend time uh, dosing based on the kilogram you know, weight of that child as a standard in adult medicine, we tend to give everybody the same, you know, 40 milligrams of, of statin, uh, regardless of their age or weight or renal function or pharmacogenomics. And now we're in this age of sort of quantified self, all the wearable devices that have exploded on the scene, whether it's a connected blood pressure cuff or step counter or scale, um, and even home-based laboratory testing can hopefully connect from quantified self to quantified health, and that data is going to flow beyond your mobile device to your healthcare provider and not just be data, but insightful information. So then that gives us the opportunity to think about our, one of our biggest grand challenges in healthcare is adherence. A lot of uh, patients, particularly older ones, are in polypharmacy taking five or more medications. Uh, to dose those individual pills is still a big challenge. We often don't dose medication well. We're using pill cutters to cut pills into halves or thirds. And, the, and sort of the pill burden reduces adherence. And now we're entering this genomic age where you can get a uh, literally a $600 uh, full genome today um, and soon uh, maybe a $100 full genome or your pharmacogenomics being done for, let's say, less than 100 pounds. Um, so the opportunity then is to drive better adherence and more precision. So the idea of this sort of 3D printing era of tailored medications came about uh, when I was thinking about my blending a pediatric to adult world. How do you take a, a patient with, let's say, common issues like hypertension, diabetes, uh, who's taking an aspirin, statin, uh, three blood pressure medications, um, uh, an H2 blocker, uh, often once a day medications, and give them the dose and combinations they need. And ideally put that in one sort of single integrated poly pill that could be built for them and modified for them. So the idea of sort of 3D printing per se is a sort of shorthand for, um, if you see the TED Talks, sort of sorting little pellets, micromeds I call them, so that you, in the pharmacist, but eventually at home could build the medication you need for that patient every morning, the right dose of aspirin, statin. Those, those may stay stable, but ACE inhibitors, uh, diuretics like Lasix, uh, uh, a uh, neuroleptic med that may be based on blood levels might be uh, need to be tailored day to day, just like we adjust uh, on a sliding scale insulin for a diabetic patient. So in a nutshell, it's blending the, the, the data, the feedback loops and the medication. You could take as a start, a patient is on five or six meds, build a poly pill for three or four of those based on their current medication doses. I think the future hopefully will be this you know, uh, um, feedback loop continuous proactive realm where if a patient does need to be on medication, those could be tuned accurately and integrate everything from their weight to their creatinine to their pharmacogenomics to their symptoms to their blood levels uh, and give us a, a new way of doing truly precision uh, personalized medication. 
And uh, you've spoken a lot about sort of the low-cost genomics and the opportunities that that kind of gives us. Now, you've had your genotype analysed, and did you get any actionable insights from it? It's hard being perfect. What can I say? <laughs> uh, no, uh, uh, you know, there's we're still the early era of, of of genomics, you know, but we're at the point where when I think I got my first twenty three me done, I actually um, helped the co-founders when they got started, way 10, 11 years ago. You can get certain in, insights already from your your SNPs. You don't need to have a full genome. I think uh, the sort of elements I see, which correlate actually to my clinical findings, I'm a little low on vitamin D, but my my genomics indicate that I I, I have a propensity potentially to have a lower vitamin D level. So maybe a, one of the evidence-based elements is to do vitamin D supplementation. Um, I might have a look at now through this whole era, which is emerging polygenic risk scores, not in a single gene, but many diseases that you know are multifactorial, including influenced by many genes. This is work out of the Broad Institute and, a, and a, actually a, a physician there I trained with at Mass General uh, that's pioneered this work. Well, we'll have a sort of a, a bit of a dashboard for each of our patients and their genetic set of risks, whether it's breast cancer, diabetes, um, uh, mental health issues, et cetera, so that we can hopefully tune their proactive prevention or screening and then their therapy in new ways. But again, for, for myself, I haven't had too many actionable elements. It's fun to know that uh, that um, I might have a risk of being lactose intolerant. Um, that seems to correlate potentially. Um, I think the most useful elements for all of us going in healthcare, as we start to crowdsource these genomic data sets, we also start to uh, divers diversify them a lot of them come from yeah. you know European Caucasians, uh, so that they're really applicable across the healthcare paradigm. The low-hanging fruit, I think, is pharmacogenomics. That's something I've, I've looked at. I don't take any medications except an occasional fish oil and vitamin D. Um, but I think for so many patients, we could be doing a much better job of, of selecting therapy, not all of it, obviously pharmacologic, uh, and the dosing and combinations based on the low-hanging fruit, which is pharmacogenetics that we have available today. but isn't really yet integrated into the clinical workflow for most clinicians. Um, I just wanted to sort of relate back to a personal experience I've had as, as well on this, Daniel. So we've talked a lot about sort of data collection. We've talked about wearables. We've talked about uh, panomics, um, collecting lots of information on individuals. And, and personally, I've just been involved in running a wearables trial within the British military. And only 36% of those in the trial actually consented to share their wearable data with us. And uh, obviously that, that makes it challenging to do precision medicine if you have such low uptake. Um, the second issue we came into as well, Daniel, was sort of the fact that lots of wearables, things like watches, are a bit of a faff. They're, you have to put it on in the morning if you didn't wear it overnight and you have to keep it charged and things like that. And I wonder what you think the future of wearables is. Is it sort of uh, rings that have long batteries or is it actually implantables? I think the future of wearables is, is that you're not wearing anything, essentially. <laughs> uh, we're in, entering the world of, of invisibles. I mean, there's work out of MIT, uh, Dina Katabi's lab, where they've modified Wi-Fi to pick up the vital signs and behaviors and even sleep patterns of you know more than up to 10 people in the same room, uh, which adds interesting questions. But you could be tracking, let's say, folks who are aging in place uh, without having to have them wear anything. Uh, that's a, an invisible. Uh, cameras now with machine learning can pick up behaviors of almost anybody. Are they drinking? Are they lying down? Or what, are, what are their behaviors? So you can, again, uh, again, has some big brother elements, but uh, can monitor <laughs> physiology. The camera on our laptops now can pick up heart rate, respiratory rate, and there's some early versions that can even do blood pressure. So 
it may not that you're not going to have to have a wearable that you charge in our traditional sense. Voice can be a biomarker to everything from uh, diagnosing heart disease to neurologic issues to emotional state. Um, so in this era of sort of digital exhaust, it's not going to be tied always to a, a physiologic patch or wearable. Um, one of my favorite examples today, I call them underwearables. There's a Bay Area company called Spire. They started in the consumer space with a device that would look at your respiratory rate and steps, but would see if you're stressed and look at your breathing and help coach you to breathe uh, uh, deeper breaths. They Now, with the alignment of new incentives in the U.S., these CPT codes for reimbursement, there are new codes that have come up for remote patient monitoring. So they've pivoted a bit. So now you get a pack of 10 of these disposable Internet of Things type sensors. You put, uh, let's see, 10 pairs of underwear, put a sensor in every pair of underwear, just wear it, and you're automatically censored. You can then you know, be thrown in laundry. And, and you know, So you basically have a, uh, underwearables that can track basic physiology anytime, anywhere, without having to think about it and do charging of devices. So That's we're going to move into a more seamless era going forward. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thanks for that. Daniel, earlier we described you as a physician, scientist, innovator. Perhaps we should have tacked on to the end an educator as well. And you do some really different stuff in the uh, medical education space. Could you describe uh, Singularity University to those who haven't heard about it before uh, and why you're a part of it? Uh, Singularity University started 2009, 10 years ago, co-founded by Peter Diamandis, who's a physician uh, best known for starting the X Prize and also International Space University, which I went to where I met him when I was a young medical student. Uh, also co-founded by Ray Kurzweil, who's a pretty well-known futurist and inventor. And the sort of the mode of Singularity University is not about the singularity, or not to be a traditional university, but to bring leaders of today and tomorrow together to understand the acceleration and potential for fast-moving technologies from AI and robotics and 3D printing and nanotech and blockchain to low-cost genomics to gene editing. Um, because many of us in our careers, whether it's in health or any other worlds, we get really good at understanding one neuron on one part of the brain or one organ system. Um, but how do we cross-fertilize and, and, and educate ourselves and collaborate in this exponential age where the new solutions, the new disruptions, both positive and negative, are coming from this new world of, you know, uh, that's creating entire new fields? You know, AI meets radiology, computational biology, AI just drug discovery, software as a medical device, uh, Internet of Medical Things. Um, so we've had programs running for now 10 years, um, and almost everyone who came to Singularity University was interested in healthcare, and many of the innovations coming through Singularity U or outside are being initiated and built by folks who are outside of medicine traditionally, not just docs and pharmacists and biotech people. So I started a program in 2011 called Exponential Medicine to uh, kind of unsilo healthcare. Most medical meetings we may go to are quite specialty focused. I'll go to oncology meetings and some hemong person, you'll go to cardiology or aerospace meetings or pharma meetings. So Exponential Medicine is a place to bring together now six, 700 uh, leading innovators from around the world as participants, plus about 80 faculty from almost every realm of health medicine and technology um, to explore what's the cutting edge, where's the puck going, and how do we all collaborate to build a better future across the healthcare paradigm from wellness, prevention, diagnostics, therapy, clinical trials, global health. So that's been an interesting you know, experiment for me. I wasn't planning to be a curator or run a conference, but it's helped catalyze a lot of new um, ideas and synergies and collaborations and even new technologies and companies that are hopefully solving healthcare problems in, in new ways, riding some of these exponential trends. 
I suppose that comes down to collaboration, as we mentioned before, and particularly cross-discipline collaboration. But what problems do you particularly think that those collaborations should be focusing on? I think part of the challenge now is in this exponential age, we're creating a lot of big data, uh, whether it's your, your wearable data, your genome, uh, environmental information, uh, all these you know, studies that you can't keep up with the literature. Um, a lot of that data is still siloed in whether it's your medical record, you're in your pharmacy, at a pharma company, in a hospital system. So I think part of the need now is to start unsiling that data, connecting the dots, so that we around the world, in whatever healthcare role you're in as a patient, as a nurse, as a doc, as a you know drug developer, that we can uh, pull that data together to turn that into useful, actionable information to provide more continuous, proactive healthcare, whether it's a drug, a device, a digiceutical, uh, public health measure. Um, and you know, there's all these new exciting tools that 10 years ago would have been quite magical, where we are with virtual reality and augmented reality headsets, which are now being used not just to, uh, to, to train a surgeon or uh, even for therapy for treating uh, pain or for use in physical therapy. Um, I think it's, again, starting to connect the dots presented in new ways and, and, and get and align incentives across different uh, healthcare innovation centers um, and enable the individual to cross-pollinate with others to, to create new solutions. Um, so the long-winded answer to a short question. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but part of it is, you know, we have all these new tools and technologies. It can be overwhelming. It's not about that technology itself. It's how do we, you know, understand how we pay for them, regulate them, and get them into the workflow again of, let's say, the clinicians so that it's not another Apple wearable or, or checks box they need to, to do, but that it pulls the right information at the right time uh, to both, the, the, let's say, the patient and the, the medical team. And just building on that, Daniel, because it's a fascinating answer, um, from the wearable trial we ran, we were surprised that just from 10 patients, we collected about 70 million data points. And what struck us was that as healthcare professionals, we're pretty ill-equipped with the skills to wrangle with this big data problem that you just outlined in your last answer. And I guess my question is to you is, how do we increase the technological readiness of healthcare workforces? Let's go back to sort of the fundamental question. How do you how do you start with medical education? Who do you pick for medical school? Is it someone who's good at uh, you know physics and organic chemistry and, and memorizing things, or do you need to f- pick folks who have higher emotional intelligence, uh, have different skill sets, uh, know how to program, um, understand machine learning and AI? Um, so I don't have the exact answer. I just think part of uh, you know, if we, as we have sort of digital natives and non-digital natives, uh, soon almost everyone's going to be a digital native. Um, how we um, select, train, and, and continually educate ourselves in the healthcare realm will be important. Um, I mean, here's one little nugget I would say. You know, for any of the folks listening out there, a lot of you are great clinicians. Um, sometimes you might be overwhelmed with technology or think, well, that's not useful. Genomics, wearables, big data, 3D printing. You know, I think all of us see problems in the clinic uh, that could be solved for with some fancy future state, but there are a lot of solutions that have already been built. It's hard to sift through them all. There are apps to help your patients manage hypertension or connect a blood pressure cuff or a patient who might have had a, a total hip replacement. Uh, you can send them home and look at their step data and see if they're doing better or worse. I would encourage folks to start finding solutions that are already out there and implementing them into their practice You know, within guidelines that uh, can start to... Uh, then catalyze those sorts of uh, solutions in a broader sense. Uh, it's it's hard to keep up with all the platforms out there. I've recently 
put together a pretty new, very basic website called digital.health. It's literally the, the website, digital.health, which is trying to help curate um, a bit of a digital health pharmacopoeia. You might be a, a, a primary care doc with a patient with atrial fibrillation. Wouldn't it be nice to know that there's a little uh, AFib tracking device like the AliveCore you can put on your watch? Sure, back of your of your phone to manage that patient, or here's a an app for patients with anxiety for managing uh, simple mindfulness uh, states. Lots of tools and technologies are there, and part of our role, I think, is to start unearthing those, showing that they have validity. Not saying you know digital health or other elements are panacea, but bottom line that we can all be catalyzing the future of healthcare by by helping building solutions and trying some of the ones that exist today, not waiting for the future to arrive in some you know, magical state. Well, thank you, Daniel. That's a really good way to finish the podcast. And thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, to all our listeners, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please do engage with us and give us feedback on Twitter at Podcast, And remember to log your CPD.